This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Radio Astronomy from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. Uh, I'm Ian Todd, I'm the magazine's editorial assistant, and I'm joined by the magazine's news editor, uh, Dr Elizabeth Pearson. Yes, and today we are at the International Astronomy Show 2017, where hundreds of visitors have been in today to see the latest uh, in equipment and collectibles in the world of astronomy, as well as hearing some talks from some of the best speakers in the world of space science and astronomy. We managed to catch up with some of them. So I'm talking to Dr. Jonathan Nichols uh, from the University of Leicester, um, an all-round uh, Juno and Jupiter expert. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, no problem. And your talk today uh, at, at IAS is, is about Juno and, and Jupiter and, and everything we've learned. But Jupiter is really a, a planet that you've studied from really your, your thesis up until your current academic career. I mean, it's, it's what first drew you to get such an interest in, in the planet? Yes, you're right. I've studied Jupiter for, well, yes, over a decade now. And uh, Jupiter is significantly interesting to me because it's a planet of superlatives. It's the biggest planet in the solar system. It's the most massive. It's got more than twice the mass of all the other planets in the solar system combined. It's the fastest rotator. It's got the biggest magnetic field. It's got the most powerful auroras in the solar system. If you're going to study a planet, to me, it seems natural that we should study Jupiter. And obviously, you're uh, talking about the uh, Juno mission. Um, the uh, title of your lecture is Juno's First Discoveries. I mean, yeah. it's really op opened up the planet to us, hasn't it? Juno has been a revelation. Um, we've had many theories um, and ideas about how Jupiter works, how it behaves. Many, of course, uh, have been with us since the Voyager era. Voyager made many significant discoveries. And actually, the ideas that we had from Voyager were very different to the ideas that we had before then. Voyager was a revelation. Um, but Juno has been another one. Um, Juno has been very different to Voyager because Voyager was a flyby. It flew past very quickly, it took some great pictures, um, and then it was on to the next planet. Um, Galileo took some amazing data. Um, that was focused on Jupiter from the plane of the moons, so it was looking at the moons of Jupiter. Juno is very different. Juno has a very different orbit. It's going over the poles of the planet, and that gives us great science that we're getting stuck into now. How did you actually come to work on the uh, science team? How, how does one actually get that gig? <laughs> well, uh, usually these things are because you have a reputation in the field. Um, my group at Leicester was uh, invited to be part of the Juno team because we have produced some of the stand what are now the standard models for how Jupiter's auroras are driven. Jupiter has very powerful auroras. Um, they're not driven in the same way as the Earth's. The Earth's mag uh, auroras are driven by solar storms, and that powers beautiful auroras that we see on, on the Earth. Jupiter's auroras are driven very differently. They're driven by the moon Io. So Io is 
uh, a volcanic moon. In fact, it's the most volcanic body in the solar system. Its volcanoes liberate sulfur dioxide at the rate of one metric ton per second. That's equivalent to having an active comet sitting deep in the magnetic field. And that, the action of Jupiter's rotation, rapid ro rapidly rotating magnetic field on that material that's released from Io drives very, very powerful electric currents that flow around Jupiter's magnetic field. Hundreds of megavolts, hundreds of millions of volts are applied across the magnetic field and this fires particles down the magnetic field line and when they hit Jupiter's atmosphere they make it glow. Uh, so that's the standard model that we have now for Jupiter's main auroras and that was developed at Leicester. Is there any way of knowing, say that we, if someone could actually stand on Jupiter and, and look up and see the aurora, is there any way of knowing how they would look in comparison to, to the Northern Lights? These auroras on Jupiter are the most spectacular in the solar system. They are a thousand kilometers high. If you could see them, they would be bright red. Hydrogen glows very brightly in the red. Now, actually, we observe them using the Hubble Space Telescope in the ultraviolet because they're very bright in, in the ultraviolet. And that's why we need a Hubble, actually. We need to go above the Earth's atmosphere, which absorbs all these, these ultraviolet rays. Um, if you could float in a balloon in Jupiter's atmosphere, if, if that was possible, then you would see, your eyes would see the bright red, and you would see the, uh, the tallest auroras in the solar system. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. And you, you mentioned there the Jupiter's magnetic field as well. It's, it's kind of one of those things that it's, it's really difficult um, for people who aren't involved in the mission science to understand how uh, an orbiting spacecraft can actually tell us so much about yeah. Jupiter's gravity and, and even uh, the interior of the planet. How does the spacecraft actually tell us all, this, all these incredible things? Juno's orbit is very specially designed so it can tell us about the magnetic field and the gravitational field of Jupiter. It's in a polar orbit. And what that means is that it, when it orbits over the poles of the planet and every time it goes round, it samples a different longitude, a different stripe of, of regions on, on the planet. And over time, it builds up a map of the magnetic field. It's got a magnetometer on it, a device to measure the magnetic field. And it builds up a map of the, uh, of the magnetic field. It also builds up a map of the gravitational field. And the way it does that is by um, is by a, a signal that's sent from Juno to the Earth with a very precise frequency. And changes in that frequency tell us about the motions of the spacecraft. It's the Doppler shift. It's why a, an ambulance tone changes as it's going past you. Very small changes in the tone of this signal from Juno tell us that the spacecraft is moving backwards and forwards. And the thing that's causing it to move backwards and forwards is the gravity of Jupiter, local gravity of Jupiter that's changing. And from that, we can infer what the interior of Jupiter is like. And that's one of the main goals of Juno. Also, um, a few months ago, we had the incredible uh, fly over the Great Red Spot. I mean, the, the images that came came in at, shortly after that were absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the closest we've ever got, really, isn't it? That is the closest we've ever got to the Great Red Spot. In fact, we flew only a few thousand kilometers above the Great Red Spot. And that sounds a long way when we're talking about a planet the size of the Earth. But on a scale of Jupiter, that's uh, we, we flew closer to the Great Red Spot than the width of the Great Red Spot itself. That tells us how close we were. And the pictures that came back from Juno of the Great Red Spot were spectacular. They made our jaws drop, and you know we're supposedly hardened scientists. We're seeing these pictures um, revealing the Great Red Spot in more detail than we've ever seen before. We saw 
fluffy clouds telling us that there was snow of ammonia on the clouds nearby. We saw the swirls in the region inside the Great Red Spot itself. We saw wave activity as very, very small scale waves, just like when you look up into the sky and sometimes you see a mackerel sky with, with, uh, with clouds that are aligned. That's the kind of thing we saw. It was incredible. Just kind of considering all, just how amazing the, the uh, Juno mission has been, do you think it's it's kind of been a long time coming? Because we've just finished the Cassini mission, and I understand that you also worked with some of the Cassini data. That's right. Um, and Cassini was was 20 years, and it, yeah. it spent so much time. Whereas Juno's only really just arrived, and as far as I know, the the mission's planned to end next year in July in 2018. The thing that limits the Juno, um, the thing that limits the length of time of the Juno mission is the radiation around Jupiter. Usually these things are limited by how much fuel you can put on the rocket. That's what limited the Cassini mission in the end, um, or how much resource there is available to put into these missions. But at, at Juno, we know that the spacecraft will be uh, eventually disabled by Jupiter's radiation. That's just the way it is. Jupiter's domain is, is extremely radioactive. Juno is built like a tank in order to try and mitigate for some of that. It's very delicate electronics are shielded by thick titanium armor plating, but the, the radiation will win in the end. Now, in order to make sure that NASA don't lose control of the spacecraft and have potentially have a spacecraft out of control in the Jupiter, uh, in the Jupiter uh, system, the spacecraft will be disposed of by deorbiting into the planet, just like the Cassini spacecraft was deorbited in, into Saturn. And that is what is going to limit the uh, the lifetime at Juno. Until then, we're obviously going to find out lots more um, about the planet. Um, what are your hopes for the rest of the mission? What what would you most like to, to know about Jupiter? What, what are the unsolved mysteries? Well, Juno has so many mysteries to solve. What's the interior structure of Jupiter like? And that's important because it tells us about the formation of Jupiter, which is in turn important because it tells us about the formation of the solar system as a whole and the formation of the Earth and how water was delivered to, uh, to the Earth. These are all deeply important questions for, to, for our place in the cosmos. Um, but also from a more personal perspective, Juno is going to reveal to us the, how Jupiter's magnetic field and auroras work. We've already had some fantastic data that's been very puzzling. Um, we've, seen, um, we've seen the bright auroras from above, but in some cases, the magnetic signatures that we kind of expected to see weren't there. Um, the magnetic field is more lumpy than we thought, which implies that the magnetic field itself is generated much closer to the surface than we thought, which has implications for magnetic fields being generated in all the outer planets. Um, so w we've been scratching our heads with some of the results from Juno, and I'm pretty sure that the spacecraft hasn't finished delivering surprises. So I think we've got a busy time of ourselves interpreting these very exciting data. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to that in the months and hopefully years to come. Yeah. Dr. Nichols, thank you very much for talking to me. No problem. I'm here at the International Astronomy Show with Dr. Helen Mason from the University of Cambridge. Um, so you are a, a solar scientist. So what is it about studying the sun that's so fascinating? Oh, well, the sun's amazing, and we can see it in a huge amount of detail also. But uh, one of the mysteries of the sun is why the corona that you see during a total eclipse of the sun is so hot. It's about a million degrees compared to the surface of the sun. So that's one of the things that has been fascinating us for a long time. 
Do we have any idea about why this is the, the corona is so much hotter? Yeah, we, we've begun to make a bit of progress, quite a bit of progress in recent years, um, in particular that I use space observations. But we know that the magnetic field on the sun is very important. And if you look at an image in the X-rays or the ultraviolet, what you'll see is the very hot uh, gas, which we call plasma because it's ionized, tracing out the magnetic field on the sun. Um, and what happens is that magnetic field gets twisted up and um, as it gets twisted up, it doesn't like to be twisted up, so it uh, changes its sh configuration, which releases energy. It releases magnetic, stored magnetic energy as heat and uh, particles, uh, accelerating particles. The sun is one of our, our best known stars. It's the one that we see, ev well, every day it's not cloudy. Um, is there still a lot about it that we don't know? Yes, I think that we, we've understood a lot more, but there's a lot of in the detail. We can see it in a huge amount of detail, uh, so in particular with recent satellites. And it's very hard to explain all the, all the details that we're seeing. So we can see a lot of motions. It's very dynamic. We can see things changing, erupting. And to be able to explain that uh, is, is quite challenging. Is it quite difficult then to, to image the sun because I know on, on people doing it uh, in their back gardens with solar scopes it's, it's incredibly hard is it uh, you can image the sun in the visible um, but you don't necessarily see very much structure you might see some prominences and things like that um, and during an eclipse of course you can image that uh, corona that outer atmosphere of the sun uh, which is amazing you can see detail in that uh, but in order to really see that corona all the time we need to go in the ultraviolet or the x-rays and that's challenging because we need to do that from space. The, what kind of instruments are there up there that are currently looking at the sun? Well we've had a tremendous number of instruments up in space um, you know just in the last 20 years or so. SOHO was launched over 20 years ago and is still operating. Stereo, the most recent solar dynamics observatory which we call our eye on the sun has uh, UV images every 12 seconds of the sun in different bands so we can see different temperatures. In fact you can google uh, solar dynamics observatory the sun today and you can see what the sun looks like mm. from space so we, we've been very lucky that we've had uh, we've had another one Hinodi which is a joint Japanese NASA UK instrument uh, looking in detail at the solar surface and how that interacts with the with the atmosphere of the sun and um, are we, do we have sort of it pretty well covered at the moment or are there any more sort of solar observatories that are going to be coming soon? We have it pretty well covered, although we are, uh, SOHO is still operating and there are some instruments on there that we we perhaps need to, to think about replacing. But the next big thing coming up um, and sponsored in Europe is Solar Orbiter and that will be 2018 that will be launched and that will go very close to the sun, about 0.3 of an astronomical unit, that's the distance between the sun and the Earth uh, towards the Sun, and it will go out of the ecliptic as well, so we'll get a lot more information from that. NASA also has a project called Solar Probe, uh, which will fly about the same time, which will go into the Sun, sampling the solar wind and looking at the Sun in detail. So we're likely to get a lot more detail <laughs> and a lot more explanations will be required. <laughs> so, so when you say it's going to fly into the Sun, that solar probe, do you mean it's actually going to...? It's going to go very close to the Sun. Ah, okay. Yes. I think initially was going to just do a kamikaze run, but I think now they've decided it'll it'll fly close, but perhaps fly around it. <laughs> the sun is is probably the most well studied star there is. Why is it so important to to get to grips with our sun? 
Well, the sun affects us, obviously, here on Earth. We live in its environment. One really important issue is that of space weather. What happens on the sun affects us here on Earth. We get the beautiful aurora that we see, but it can also have damaging uh, effects on technology. We live in a very technological age, and it can damage satellites, knock out electricity grids, affect um, you know astronauts in, in, in space. So that we need to understand the sun better. And the Met Office now has a whole section, which is dealing with space weather as well as regular weather. You obviously love what you do and you, you love the sun. What is so fascinating about it to you? I absolutely love the sun. I'm passionate about the sun. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the solar eclipse uh, last August in the USA. And what a privilege that was to actually see with my own eyes the corona. I don't ever look at the sun unless it's during an absolute total eclipse of the sun. You must use special telescopes. It's it's dangerous to look at the sun. But during the eclipse, it was a real honor to be there and to see that uh, crown of light, that we call the corona, the atmosphere of the sun, for yourself and to participate in that huge event which went right across the USA. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Um, I'm certainly, I've got much more enthusiastic about the sun. I hope it decides to come out later today. Um, And thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Chris Copperweight, who's the Liverpool Telescope Astronomer in Charge at uh, the Liverpool John Muir's University. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Now, the Liverpool Telescope, for someone who maybe isn't au fait with what it does, you might be forgiven for thinking that it is in Liverpool. That's yeah. not, in fact, the case, is it? No, no. A lot of people ask us that. Um, but, yeah, Liverpool has about sort of 98, 99% cloud cover. So uh, so we, uh, when we're building any telescope or any uh, considerable aperture, we, we choose one of the, the, the great sites in the world. And the Liverpool Telescope is in the Canary Islands. So the island of La Palma is, is Europe's northern observatory, has some of... Uh, uh, the world's largest telescope, and the uh, Liverpool Telescope, the world's largest robotic telescope, is is there. One of the, one of the other telescopes that's there is like the, the Isaac Newton Telescope, for example, and yeah. it moved from. It was originally built in England and then moved. Is it? Is it? Have, it was. Have, has kind of British astronomers kind of learnt their lesson that you can't, you're not going to get much done if you build a telescope in in, in England? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, if, if you're going to build a, um, a you know a multi-million pound facility, then you know you choose the best site. And so this is why there's a few places in the world, uh, Chile, Hawaii, these are the places where the telescopes are concentrated, where the, the seeing, the, the light pollution, the, um, and the, uh, the, the trans- transparency of the sky in terms of cloud coverage is absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, what sets us apart, of course, as a robotic telescope to, compared to all the other telescopes on the mountain is that we have no staff out there. So the Isaac Newton telescope, for example, has a staff that live and work on site, same as all the other telescopes. All of our staff are based in Liverpool. We run the telescope entirely remotely from Liverpool. And the other thing is, I say robotic, I don't mean remote control. So we don't have someone in Liverpool who sits up through the night babysitting it, telling it what to do. We, we go to bed in the evening, the telescope opens itself, it chooses what to observe, when to observe, it closes in the morning. We get up and we find out what it's done at nine o'clock. Does it know to, to pick out things like like signs of exoplanets or things like that? So essentially, all of the uh, astronomers who use the telescope, they, they can access it from around the world via, via the internet and they tell it what they want to observe. But then the telescope makes its decisions about what and when to observe. So different programs have different scientific priority. Some things are very time critical. Um, some things have to be observed right now. If something's gone bang in the universe, you have to observe it right now. So the telescope itself schedules and chooses what to observe based on the, the criteria it's been fed in the day by the astronomers. Mm. 
Are telescopes like this, and in particular the Liverpool telescope, yeah. are they accessible by the public, or is it only for you know scientists and professional astronomers? So uh, at the core of what we do is uh, a public outreach, really, and it was recognised very early on that this model, where the astronomers can use the telescope from anywhere in the world, well that gives you the opportunity to provide that access as well. So we run from Liverpool the National Schools Observatory. So um, any uh, school student within the UK and Ireland can can use the telescope, the same telescope as the professionals. Uh, we provide all the information for teachers if they want to get involved in the project. We have 3,000 schools UK-wide who are in this project from, from primary up to A-level. Uh, it's all done via the web. Uh, it all uh, fits in with the curriculum. And it's, uh, we, dev we devote 10% of the telescope time to this type of work. So it's really, really important and, and core to what we do. Presumably a quick Google would, would throw up the relevant yeah, website. If you Google for National Schools Observatory, you'll, you'll find everything you need to know. I mean, this is really important because, you know, um, uh, astronomy is, is, is kind of a, a, a gateway drug for science. You know, all <laughs> children are interested in astronomy, the stars, the planets. And so it's a way of getting them really interested in scientific topics and, and getting them involved. They collect their own data, their real images of the planets, of the moon and that sort of thing. So, and they can do proper science with it, you know, genuine. It's not just pretty pictures. We have projects where they do real science. And it's, so, it's, it's good stuff. With regards to your work, are you operating... Um, in a specific field? Uh... So my my field is quite broad. I'd, I'd say time domain astronomy. So I'm interested in things in the universe that change. So things that uh, explode, uh, so things like uh, supernovae, for example, gamma ray bursts. Uh, very recently, uh, gravitational wave events is a, is a core interest. Um, also, uh, binary stars, where, where one star moves in front of another and you see an eclipse, that's a sort of core interest of what I do, and a transiting planet. So that's a similar sort of thing where the planet moves in front of the star, you see a little dip in the starlight as it blocks out the light. And that's actually the um, subject of your, your lecture here at IAS, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So today I was talking about the, uh, the, the TRAPPIST system, TRAPPIST-1. Um, so this is a, a very exciting discovery of seven Earth-sized planets that were discovered around, around the star TRAPPIST-1. This is a nearby a red dwarf, 40 light years away. And the Liverpool Telescope was part of a sort of a worldwide collaboration. It played a key role in this sort of campaign in discovering these, uh, these planets. Just talking about uh, exoplanet research in general, it's, it's not that... Uh, old field in terms of, of science. Yeah. How much of a revelation do you personally think the discovery of the first exoplanet was? Because presumably we were able to assume that other planets did exist, but not, not that science is about assumption. The first, first you know, really confirmed discovery was in 1995. It's all grown from there. And now we know about three and a half thousand. So it's escalated incredibly quickly. And, and we, we do make assumptions because that first discovery was of a hot Jupiter. It was a Jupiter-sized planet, very close to its star, only about sort of four days a year. And uh, the time it takes to go all the way around, four days. Um, this was a type of planet we're not conceived of. So all our ideas about how planetary systems formed were based on one data point, our own solar system. So when we saw this, a, a Jupiter-sized planet close in, we thought the little rocky ones are close by, the big Jupiter ones further away, that's how they all must be, because that's how our one is. Uh, not true at all. So this changed our ideas dramatically. Um, and yes, it's just escalated since then. So now the detection of planets is routine, thousands and thousands. They're doing the more advanced techniques like characterization of their atmospheres is routine. Finding Earth-sized planets is now becoming increasingly routine. We know of, you know, coming up to a dozen type Earth-sized planets. Uh, characterization of Earth-sized planets' atmospheres, looking for signs of life, biomarkers, oxygen, ozone. 
This is just around the corner, so it's an incredibly exciting time in the field. Fantastic. How can we actually know what uh, an exoplanet's atmosphere is like? Is there, is there a way of kind of analysing? So we have a transiting planet. So a tra uh, the planet moves in between us and the star, blocks out a bit of the starlight. So there's a dip of around about 1%. So if we look at different wavelengths, so we have, you know, the spectrum going from a red light to blue light, um, depending on what the atmosphere is made of, the atmosphere might absorb or, or transmit the light differently at different wavelengths. And what that means is the planet will appear to be a different size at the different wavelength. So if you think of the Earth, for example, if we look at the sky, we see a blue sky and we see a, a yellowy sun. And the reason is that the yellowy light from the sun just plunges straight through like a bullet through our atmosphere and hits our eyes. The blue light enters our atmosphere and is scattered all over the shop. It's scattered by the uh, nitrogen in our atmosphere. It's absorbed, re-emitted, absorbed, re-emitted. So when it reaches our eyes, it appears to come from all directions. That's why the sky is blue. So atmospheres will preferentially absorb different colours of light. So if an atmosphere absorbs all the blue light, the size of the planet, which causes the size of the dip, is the size of the planet plus the atmosphere. But if it lets the red light through, it's just the size of the planet. So what you find is when you sort of look at the, the, the dip, the size of the dip you get with colour of light, it changes. And from that, you can work out what the atmosphere is made of. Okay. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does, yes. Just to kind of bring that back then to TRAPPIST-1, yeah. what have we actually learned about the, the planets that are in orbit? Because there are seven. Is it seven planets? Or in seven orbit? planets, yes. Um, so we routinely now look at the atmospheres around Jupiter-sized planets. We're not quite there with, with Earth-sized planets. We really, I think, need the next generation of telescopes. For the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, the successor to Hubble, which NASA plans to be launching in about two years' time. Uh, tools like this uh, and the next generation of extremely large telescopes, these will be the tools where we will probe exoplanet Earth, uh, Earth-sized exoplanet atmospheres. So we will be looking for things like ozone, for example, which, this is a, a key indication of an atmosphere similar to ours. We will be looking for um, sort of compositions, you know, the, the, uh, the oxygen, uh, nitrogen, um, carbon dioxide balance of our atmosphere is determined by the, the plant content on the surface, photosynthesis, this sort of thing. We could be looking for these sort of biomarker clues. I've seen theoretical research that says we could look at the atmosphere of an exoplanet and see traces of pollution. So we know that we, uh, we impact our atmosphere, global warming, that sort of thing. So it's conceivable within the next couple of decades we could look at an Earth-sized exoplanet and say not only is there life there, but they've been through an industrial revolution. <laughs> and that's incredible. a staggering thought, isn't that's it? That's absolutely <laughs> incredible. And also, I mean, people, when they're talking about exoplanets, they talk about the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Well, if you just explain what that is for us? When you want to find a planet, uh, you're interested um, in, a, in it as a, a source of life. That's, that's really what we're getting to here. We're looking for you know, life outside the universe. And we're also looking for, as, uh, as Mr. Spock says, uh, life as we know it. So we're looking in places where the conditions match the Earth. So then we might find Earth-sized planets that are very close to their stars, like hot Jupiters, but they'd be so close they'd be you know, scorched husks. What we're interested in is Earth-sized planets where the temperature is similar to the Earth, the temperature is such we might have liquid water on the surface, because as far as we understand life, you need liquid water, or liquid water is a, a really important part of what you need for life. Um, so this is what we call the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone is the distance from the star 
where the temperature on the surface will give you liquid water. Now that's going to vary depending on the star. If you have a hotter star, that Goldilocks zone is going to be further away, a cooler star uh, closer in. And it's also a little bit more complicated than just the star because you have the atmosphere effect as well. So Venus, for example, is, is you know, not too far away from us. Some time ago, Venus was probably quite pleasant. Now the temperature on Venus' surface is around about 400 degrees or more, isn't it? Uh, and that's because it has a, a, a extreme sort of uh, global warming runaway carbon dioxide dominated atmosphere like a blanket. So there are other factors going into habitability rather than just distance from the star. But distance from the star is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously what we're looking for is signs of other life existing. But are, yes. are, are we also looking for a, for a second Earth, for, for a second place for humans to potentially... <laughs> Well, it's always good to have an insurance policy, isn't it? So, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking talks about this, uh, you know, about the future of humanity. And it's true, you know, we are, we are tied to the life of our planet. There have been extinction level impacts from asteroids on our planet in the past. And they will happen again. It's not a question of, of if, but when. So it could be tomorrow, it could be in 10 million years. Um, but if, depending on, you know, what our, our, our um, ambitions are for the lifetime of our species, this is something to consider. And in terms of your research, what are you kind of hope, what are your hopes for the future? What are your, your ambitions? Your well, I mean, I think uh, the discovery of the Earth's planets is set to explode. There are more and more facilities coming online looking for this sort of thing. So, so huge numbers, numbers where we can do real sort of population studies, um, probing the atmospheres, and then what we're really hoping for is is those those signs of life. You know, this is this is not just a scientific event. You know, this is a a cultural human event, an event of profound importance, right up there with you know the discovery of fire. So. It has the potential to, you know, change our species in, in every way, you know, set us within our place in the universe, you know, give us a, a, a greater understanding, perhaps, you know, unify us as a species, you know, this moment of discovery. It's, uh, it's an exciting time and, and we, are, we are at the age, we're the, the, the first, you know, generations where we can say this could happen in our lifetime. It's something we've always um, um, strived for, but now we know, we, we're starting to know where to look and we're building the tools to look. So we have a realistic chance, and so we live in very exciting times. We do indeed, and, and we look forward to um, finding what uh, scientists like yourself come up with in the future. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. I'm here at IAS talking with Chris Lintott, who is a columnist for Sky at Night magazine, but he's also the principal investigator of a little thing called Galaxy Zoo. So, Chris, tell me, what is Galaxy Zoo? Galaxy Zoo is now 10 years old, and it started as a solution to a very simple problem, which was that we had too many galaxies to deal with, or too many images of galaxies. And if you're trying to understand how all these things form and evolve, you want to know what shape they are. The shape tells you about their history, mm. and that's something that is best done by looking at the images. We can still do better as people with pattern recognition skills than computers can do. Um, and so when we had a million images of galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, we asked for help online via this website, Galaxy Zoo. People responded in their hundreds of thousands. Uh, and we've made wonderful discoveries and been able to do great science as the result uh, of people's input. And so what has been some of the, the sort of biggest and best results that have come out of it? Well, I think for me, the most exciting stuff isn't really the discoveries, although there have been plenty of those. It's what happens when you have careful labelling 
of many, 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 many different galaxies. Um, we've been working recently on a set of very special galaxies, which are disk galaxies like the Milky Way. So they have spiral arms, but they don't have the bulge at the center that most spirals have. So they're completely flat. And because they don't have a bulge, you could say they're guaranteed merger-free. We don't think they've collided with another galaxy in the last probably four to five billion years. And so we can use those to work out whether mergers mm. affect normal galaxies. And so it's that ability to start with a million galaxies and end up with a hundred or so very particular special galaxies that's the key to Galaxy Zoo's success. And when you're going through so much data and so many images, um, did, you, did you turn up anything unexpected? Well, that's the other piece, especially when you get the public and sort of Sky at Night readers and, and viewers involved, is that people get distracted in the most wonderful way. Yes, we want to know whether there are spiral arms or whether there's a bulge in the galaxy, but people also want to know what the strange blobs in the corner are. Uh, uh, my favourite example of that is a set of galaxies called the Galaxy Zoo Peas. And they're called the peas because they're small and they're round and they're green. And a bunch of volunteers who called themselves the Peas Corps set out to work out what these things are. And they turn out to have an interesting story. They're dwarf galaxies. They're about a tenth of the size of the Milky Way. And they live in the middle of nowhere. They're in the least dense parts of the local universe. But somehow they've just decided to turn all of their gas into stars. And so these are the most efficient factories of stars anywhere in the local universe. Um, and so people are studying them because they tell us, we think, what might have happened when very big galaxies formed early on. They're sort of the last stragglers of that form of galaxy formation. And they've been in, you can find references to them in papers going back to the 1950s, but no one had looked at them. And so when no one had realized how different they were until the volunteers came along and said, look, there are these P things and you should try and find out what they are. It's been running for 10 years now. Uh, can people still get involved with Galaxy Zoo? Yeah, we sp I spent most of yesterday talking about where we're going to get the next set of galaxies from. So we've gone through the original million galaxies. We had lots of people look at each one, so we have a, a sense of confidence in their answers. We've also gone to the distant universe with big Hubble surveys. But the next big challenge is to look at the southern sky. So probably by the time this uh, podcast is out, we'll have put in new images from a new survey of the southern sky, which will double the number of galaxies and we hope double the number of these very rare galaxies um, that we find and that's important because even though we start with millions of galaxies by the time you say okay to understand what's going on I need a set of galaxies that are all the same mass that are all the same color that live in the same kind of environment that are all spirals maybe they all have bars and I want to compare only one aspect you end up with only a few and so even finding an extra couple in each box makes a huge difference so I'm looking forward to looking at the rest of the sky the other thing we've been doing and people can take part in galaxyzoo.org is some of the images that you'll see there at the minute aren't real galaxies. They come from big computer simulations of the universe. And the people who make these simulations, very clever theorists and friends of mine, say that these images are perfect replicas of the galaxies that we mm. see around us. And that's exciting because in the simulation you understand the physics. And so if you can produce galaxies that match what we see today and you know what the physics of your simulated universe is, you can say, okay, that's the physics of the real universe and we understand what's going on. But when we've had Galaxy Zoo volunteers look at these simulated images, they've started to notice all kinds of differences. And so there's a paper that we're just finishing off now where we'll be able to go back to them and say, okay, actually their massive galaxies are all right, but once you get down to things about the size of the Milky Way, things go horribly wrong. So we need help catching the computers out as well. It's been 10 years and since then there's not just been Galaxy Zoo, there's been dozens of other projects uh, and not just in, in 
astronomy, in history and literature. When you started, did you think you were going to get this kind of response from the public? Oh, no, we've got, had no idea what we're doing. This, <laughs> this looks like a plan. This has been 10 years of being distracted by things. No, I, but I think what happened early on was we were all inspired by the idea that people would take part in their spare time. That I, you know, I know that people love astronomy and love looking at the night sky, but the idea that people would give up even a few minutes of their time to just help is kind of radical, and yet we have this huge wave of volunteers. And I'd like to believe it's because the images in Galaxy Zoo were particularly beautiful. They're not. They're faint, fuzzy blobs. These are distant galaxies that have come from big surveys. So you do get occasional interesting, beautiful ones, but mostly it's blobology. Um, and so what gets people is the fact that they can contribute to science. And so then you can try all of these other scientific disciplines. And we built this platform called the Zooniverse that allows other scientists, sometimes astronomers doing things like looking in detail at asteroids or trying to keep track of solar weather or looking at star-forming regions, um, or sometimes other scientists, um, I have friends who count penguins for a living. Um, <laughs> and so you could go to penguinwatch.org and you could spend a Saturday afternoon counting penguins. And that data will help science, just as the Galaxy Zoo volunteers helped us. And do you find that uh, people sort of just sit down, do their five minutes and then that's it? Or, or, or do people get further involved and want to find out what happens to this data afterwards? Well, I think it's a mix. I don't want to give the impression that you're signing up for a lifetime <laughs> of, of galaxy astrophysics. That's not the case. Even a few minutes is helpful. Um, but it's certainly true that once people are surprised by what they've seen, um, I think they're also surprised by what they want to know. People who never thought themselves as astronomers would never imagine looking at a paper or thinking about spectra. If they found an unusual galaxy, like one of the Ps, they become hugely motivated to learn about it and do more. And so we see people having a sort of career in this, what we call citizen science, where they're going from classifying some galaxies to talking about what they found to using data from elsewhere to follow up on discoveries. We've seen that particularly in a project called Planet Hunters, which is using data from the Kepler Space Telescope to look at uh, brightness changes in about 150,000 stars with the goal of finding planets. There's a whole bunch of Planet Hunters volunteers who become experts in variable stars and in all the other things that stars do to change brightness other than have a uh, planet go in front of them. And so that's been great to watch and, and, and to see them become leading experts in these things has been wonderful. It's amazing. It's, there's so much things out there that people could take part in. If they did want to, where would they go to, to find this information? If you know you care about galaxies, you just go to galaxyzoo.org. If you want to think about penguins or some of these other projects, it's zooniverse.org. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today, Chris. My pleasure. So that's it from us at the International Astronomy Show 2017. It's been a great two, two days, hasn't it, Is? It's been brilliant two days. We've chatted with some really good speakers and learned a lot about space and science. If you want to learn more, then you can always pick up BBC Sky at Night magazine, uh, which is available in print and digital edition. And you can find out more at www.skyatnightmagazine.com. Goodbye.